Hello and welcome to this podcast of New Books and Sports. My name is Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose a notable new book on some area of sports and we talk with the author. This week we are looking at the big money and scandal-plagued world of American college sports. Our guest is Charles Klotfelter, a professor of public policy, economics, and law at Duke University and a respected scholar of the economics of higher education. His new book is Big Time Sports in American Universities, published by Cambridge University Press. As Charlie points out at the start of his book, nowhere else in the world do university students take part in games and tournaments as unpaid amateurs that have the same followings and earn as much money as professional sports leagues. Big Time College Sports is unique to the sports landscape of the United States but it is also a curious feature of that landscape. As we discuss in the interview, major revenue-generating sports programs, mainly football and men's basketball, exist in something of a parallel universe from the institutions of higher education that they are affiliated with. University professors and administrators, on the one hand, and athletic directors and coaches, on the other, maintain a standoffish but mutually dependent relationship. Meanwhile, outside the university, alumni, as well as those who never enrolled at the school, generally identify themselves with their college teams, rather than with any academic program. The basketball team gets far more attention than the medical school, and the paycheck for the football coach dwarfs the salary of the university president. Big-time college sports have long been part of sports culture in America. And one of the most interesting bits in Charlie's book is that there has been little change over the last 90 years in the list of the most successful university sports programs. But the criticisms of college sports have also been consistent over the last century. Too much commercialism, too much cheating, and too great an emphasis on athletics over academics. In recent decades, these issues have been compounded as revenues for college sports, especially from television, have risen astronomically. Even if you wear your college colors proudly on Saturdays in the fall and during March Madness, the evidence that Charlie uncovers should be upsetting to you. I found his book to be eye-opening, and I thoroughly enjoyed talking with him about it. So let's turn to the interview. Charlie, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you for joining me on the program. Thank you, Bruce. I look forward to talking with you. So before we discuss the book, I should ask first about your your reasons for writing the book. So you hold a named chair in public policy at Duke University, where you also teach economics and law, and much of your, your past research has been on the economics of education. But you also mentioned in your preface that you grew up a football and a basketball fan, and then you have a bit of sports writing experience in your background, even. So, what led you to what led you to put these interests together and write this book on big time college sports? Well, I think this topic was probably uh, eating at me for about thirty years, uh, so it took a while for me to actually decide to write a book on this topic. Like a lot of Americans, I grew up taking for granted the fact that universities like Georgia Tech and Alabama and University of Minnesota and UCLA would have teams that would play before large crowds and get covered by the media and that lots and lots of people would care about the outcomes. But 
the United States is the only country in the world that has universities that have their own commercial sports teams and leagues. It just doesn't happen anywhere else. The question that I eventually came to is to examine the ever-present but unexplored, which is what social scientists often end up doing, and say, why in the world does this go on in the United States? And what functions does this activity play? Because it's been around for a long, long time. So the book I wanted to look at was to ask a question that has to do with this paradoxical um, existence of an activity that has no apparent connection to the other things that we do in universities, namely research, teaching, and service. I tried to take the perspective of somebody, say, from Europe, who would come over to one of our universities, have a tour, and then get to the football stadium and say, exactly what role does this have in this great institution? And you also talk in in the beginning of your book about how uh, you're addressing a, a big, big gap in research on higher education. Well, Bruce, it struck me as surprising, maybe even astonishing, the degree to which esteemed scholars of higher education can look at every nook and cranny about their institutions and about the markets for higher education and about policies that have to do with higher education and the effects of on students without ever mentioning the first time big-time commercial college athletics. I looked at a number of books, and I, and I have to admit that that I'm responsible for this to some extent because I've written a couple of uh, books and edited um, a couple that are about a lot of aspects of higher education which don't refer to big-time sports. The other thing that really struck me as almost funny was to look at the published mission statements of universities, which are readily found on the web. I looked at, I tried to find the mission statements for 58 universities that are very prominent and have big time sports programs. Of those, 52 of them had published mission statements, but only five of those 52 had the first mention of anything about athletics, uh, let alone um, intercollegiate athletics. So Scholars and also those who are in charge of universities seem to be living in a parallel universe in which these matters are left for others and are not even suitable for academic um, attention. And so what I wanted to do is to write an academic book and really try to say, what's going on here and are the benefits greater than the costs? So we should clarify at the start that, that you're not a professor on a crusade against college sports. You you would still describe yourself as a sports fan today, correct? Uh, I don't think I can uh, get this out of my blood that I am a sports fan. I'm not um, – I, I don't think I'm a lunatic, and, and I also uh, and I also am selective. I, I don't – there are a number of professional um, sports that I just don't follow that uh, often, but I, I do like watching uh, sports many sports on TV, and I guess I'm especially 
interested in college basketball uh, and football. Now, if you live in this part of the country, if you're not interested in college basketball, then there'll be a lot of conversations that you won't have any way of getting into. So and it's I tell people that just arrived that they need to, to um, acknowledge its existence and, and probably they should have a team to cheer for because somebody will ask uh, who they're for. Okay. Uh, so I want to get back to the point that you raised about this this disconnect between the academic and the research work of major universities and then these large, multi-million dollar athletic programs. And, and you, in fact, just use the, the phrase, which comes up in your book, that these are really two parallel universes. Could you go on and explain more about these two separate functions in the universities? Well, I, I would make a distinction. In, in the minds of scholars, it's, it's just very funny to see how they ignore this. Way back in 1976, James Michener wrote um, a very entertaining book, Sports in America, and he made the statement somewhere along the way, really citing the fact that scholars don't pay much attention to it. He said, it is easier to find a study on the effects of the Flemish language on the children of Antwerp than to find any study of what goes on in the athletics department at the universities where scholars work. And so that we, we go far and, uh, abroad to find uh, very small and um, topics to study, and this is what universities do. But there is uh, a looming reality right around the corner, which scholars like me either think is um, below um, their uh, attention, they shouldn't pay attention to it, or that it's it's so obvious that we don't even need to talk about it. So that was really what I wanted to do. And I would say about, in terms of being a crusader, um, it is true that there is a great deal uh, written about college sports. It's not that people have ignored that topic. It's that nobody's written at it, uh, about it as a topic in higher education. And when it comes to college sports, Opinions are all over the place, and they are—they're very firmly held. So there, you could say that really this whole topic has received more than its share of opinion, but probably not its share of facts. So what I was really trying to do was to put facts together and so let the reader decide. And I would also say that I—I I really thought that the picture at the end of the day would be largely negative. There are certainly a lot of negatives about college sports, and I do not try to whitewash those. But I was surprised to find some positives that people haven't talked about before. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's start by, by talking about how do universities justify these large athletics programs? And, and here I'll clarify that in your book, uh, you focus mainly on men's college basketball and, uh, and football as, as these two marquee revenue-generating uh, sports on university campuses. When they talk about it, universities justify these activities in terms of the attention they bring to the university, that uh, applicants find out about the university. For example, Butler University has gotten a great deal of attention in the last two years because of its success in men's basketball. So it's the attention that possible students would uh, uh would give to the university. It might also be uh, justified uh, on the basis of creating a sense of community on a campus. Uh, 
Sometimes it's thought of as being um, useful in creating support from the community and even uh, perhaps from the state legislature. So, and I guess finally, it's it's thought about as, as being something that will train young people uh, by giving them experiences in leadership and in cooperation that uh, are not available in the classroom. While I think all those things are true, uh, even the last one, I do not believe that those justifications add up to enough of a reason to explain why big-time sports has been such a permanent, um, important, and prominent part of American college uh, and university life. Mm -hmm. So you do test some of these justifications in your book, and we'll talk about your findings later on. But you make a point at the start of the book that that these programs – are really, as you state bluntly, this is entertainment. And, and you have a great line at the beginning of the book in which you note that universities not only compete with other universities for research funding and for faculty, but they're also competing with professional sports and with American Idol for audiences. So could you talk about this? Well, I, I this is one of the curiosities that you run into by being in the entertainment business, and there is no mistake that we universities are in the entertainment business. If if somebody were going to swoop down, some statistician from Washington were going to fly down to Chapel Hill and look at the sports entertainment program at Chapel Hill, and it, if it weren't connected with the University of North Carolina, they would classify it readily in the entertainment business. This would be a pretty good-sized firm. And it would be in the same industry as the Washington Redskins. But because it's connected with the university, it's not classified that way. So one of the things, I, if I have a crusade in the book, it is let's get real and, and let's uh, call entertainment entertainment. Universities, including Duke, including the University of Virginia, uh, University of Texas, Alabama, and Stanford all are in their entertainment business in a very real way. So we in universities ought to start with a little candor and say, yes, we are in the entertainment business. That does not mean we're not in a research business, teaching and service. We're definitely in those as well. But the one we don't acknowledge is the entertainment. And because of being in the entertainment business, it means effectively that our universities are going toe-to-toe with television programs for the attention of the, of the popular um, person out there. And so this, in, in effect, then becomes the populist side of universities, whereas we university faculty just think we're purely an intellectual, an intellectual enterprise for those universities that have one of these commercial programs, we also have a populist side that we don't really understand. And a, and a point you make is it's not so much also, uh, it, it, in many cases, it's instead of that, that this populist side that, that people look to the university uh, primarily for its sports programs. Well, uh, <laughs> and it, this is probably something that's um, – not very happy news to my fellow professors, um, but uh, I did I did a few uh, kind of tests to see what do people know about universities, 
And one of the tests I did was to look at the most serious newspaper in our country, the New York Times. And I looked for an entire year for these 58 universities. The 58 universities I looked at in a lot of cases were those who uh, are members of the five biggest conferences, the ACC, the SEC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, and the Pacific Ten plus Notre Dame. So those 58 universities. So the New York Times had about 600 articles in 2007 about those 58 universities. Of those 600 articles, 87% were about sports. 87%. Another thing that's a more modern way of saying who gets more attention. I I did a a Google horse race. I said, okay, for each of these universities, I'm going to pit the president against the the football coach and the basketball coach and see who gets more Google hits. And I did this in a systematic way to enter in each search line, the name of the university in several ways and the name of the person in several ways. And and I took the one that was the highest for football coaches, football coaches beat the president of their university 56 out of 58 times. And so it's just and, and an average ratio was seven hits for every one for the president. So in terms of the popular imagination, these universities are known, if at all, by the general public because of the teams that they have. So these sports teams are, are prominent with the general public. But I want to switch to your discussion of, of budgets within universities. And when you look at big-time sports programs as part of the university and, and looking at the university budget and expenditures and revenues, um, it, it's surprising that, and, and I don't know if I would say this, if, if this would be an accurate um, interpretation, that athletics programs are not that large a piece of the university or, or they're not as large as we would expect given the attention to the sports programs. That's right. Uh, They are not nearly as large as these measures that I just cited. And and one might argue, in fact, uh, members of the athletic departments will often bring that statistic up. Hey, we're only this percentage of the of the whole budget. I think that is a a useful way to measure, uh, but it's only one of several. If you wanted to ask how big uh, a role the big-time sports has in a university. Um, you might also measure, besides these measures that I cited, like um, newspaper coverage, let's look at the number of person hours devoted to athletics versus everything else. So I took a nearby university, uh, did a back-of-the-envelope measure, I said, okay, let's here's here's the number of faculty. Let's get them. Let's let them work 50 hours a week for 50 weeks a year. Here, the students will let them work 50 hours a week for whatever number. Here's the staff. We'll add up those hours. Okay, that's on one side of the ledger. Then the other side of the ledger, I said, here's the number of people that go to their football games. Let's say that's a when they go to the game, it's usually it takes about four hours. So we'll put four hours on that. And then for every basketball game, this is the number of people that go, and, and we'll put in three hours for those. And then every time you have a televised game, we should count the number of hours spent by people watching those. If you add those up, the sports hours is almost twice what everything else is in the university. So, again, that's another measure to say this is not chicken feed. This is not something that's so 
minor that you'd forget about it when you're writing your mission statement. So there must be a reason why these universities don't want to highlight this function. So I want to stick with this issue of, of athletics programs and, and university budgets. And uh, one to ask you first, where do these big, big time athletic athletics programs get their revenue? And then what are their expenditures? They, it's a tradition in uh, American universities to put the athletics department off by itself in term, budgetarily and let the revenue sports, mainly football and men's basketball, pay for all the other sports. Sometimes there's physical education in there it, that, that might differ from place to place. And sometimes there are revenue sports besides those two. Sometimes women's basketball brings in money, sometimes soccer, baseball, hockey, but mainly it's those two. And, and so what do they, uh, how do they pay for themselves? It differs. If you're looking at Ohio state and Texas, Florida, these are the marquee programs Alabama, things, uh, Michigan, they are pretty much pay for themselves. That is the football program and the basketball program bring in enough revenue to pay for all the other sports. But that is the rarity. When you get down the food chain, down to the less successful teams, even in the big conferences, but certainly when you get into the less successful teams in the sort of the ordinary conferences, those universities cannot pay for their athletics based on football and basketball. They generally have to turn to the university to get a subsidy, and they sometimes and often, actually they often, will turn to students and tax the students through a student fee. That's the way they can balance their budget. But even that, the lesser teams, what you might call the have-nots, they have coaches that don't they don't get as much money. They have smaller stadiums, and basically, you know, they're using buses when the big time places are on airplanes. So, with these programs, many of these programs running running deficits in terms of the athletic departments. Uh, why is it? Is is that just that the programs such as Texas and Alabama are making more in in TV revenue? Why is it that you have so many schools, their athletic departments, running budget deficits? The reason, <laughs> the short answer is that the trustees or the boards of governors or the regents, whoever is in charge of these universities, they want to have competitive teams, period. There's, they're not doing it in order to get better at, uh, at, uh, academically. They just want to have competitive teams. The fact that they might bring some attention, that's a good thing. Uh, that the fact that they might bring bad attention is something to be uh, feared and avoided if possible. But it, when it comes down to it, the explanation that I come up with is why is, is this part of American higher education so sturdy and long-lived? It's because the people that run American universities with these programs simply want to have competitive teams. That is... The Ohio State trustees do not relish the idea of being beaten by Michigan. Uh, and so they want to minimize that. And the same goes for the Michigan regents. They, they want to uh, be competitive. They'd like to win the Big Ten sometimes, but they certainly don't want to get beat 
by Ohio State at eight out of ten years, which I think is is probably what happened the last decade. And and I'm sure the people in Ann Arbor are not happy about that. So budgetary considerations are are really don't matter. It's all about no, the, no. They never. They, it never is the case that they don't matter. But they they have to be traded off against other things. And if if one were to say, well, the reason for athletics uh, in colleges is is to make money. That is not the reason. That that is just not a very good explanation because number one, they're basically a drain at most places, and and just getting into the the haves and the have-nots just for a second. The economics of running one of these programs at the Michigan's, Ohio State, UCLA, Alabama, Florida level, it just looks so much different than even the losers in those same conferences. If you're at the bottom, um, if you're down at the bottom of, of, of one of these big leagues, let's say Mississippi State, for example, yeah, you're you're losing most of your conference games, but you're you're still in pretty good shape because you're getting a lot of revenue sharing, mainly from these big television uh, packages. So the SEC has a big one. ACC just uh, signed one. Uh, so did the Pac-10. Big Ten has their own network, uh, and this is the direction uh, people are going. They get a lot of money from these by putting these things on television, and that's really one of the, actually one of the startling things about how much college TV is, college uh, sports are on TV. Anyway, they take this money and it gets distributed. So Mississippi State stays alive because it gets basically welfare from Alabama and the rest of the uh, the really good teams. One of the most surprising things about the economics of running these programs is that at the very top, at the Texas and even Duke level, contributions, that is charitable contributions that are deductible in the income tax, turn out to be a major and in some cases the most important single source of revenue. Uh, And that really did surprise me when I found that out. Yeah, I was surprised by that too. And so I was going to ask you that. Uh, and, and you have this this uh, graph in the book, uh, and I can't hold the graphs up to the microphone, but, but you have this graph that shows the increase in television revenue for college sports. And in the last 20 years, it 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 takes a Himalayan ascent in, in terms into the hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on college sports. And yet you make this point that uh, still ticket revenue as well as contributions are, uh, in many cases, more important to athletics budgets. Uh, for tickets are are quite important, and the reason why um, TV is not as as important as it is for the biggest teams is because of these revenue sharing arrangements that that the conferences make, and uh, and why would Texas go into a well Texas is a special example because they they look like they're going to become almost like Notre Dame a, sort of an entity unto itself, but why would a Florida uh, go into an arrangement where they're going to bowls, they're making all this money, but they're just they're sharing it with their fellow team uh, teams in the league. The reason it's in their interest to do that is because they have to have a league, they have to have opponents to be able to beat. And and now with these new TV arrangements, you have to have a conference that's big enough for uh, entry into this. Um, cartel called the uh, bowl championship uh, series. So 
everybody uh, is, is in there for um, a good reason. And, um, and I think the most telling fact about the whole thing, Bruce, is how rare it is for any university that has been in a big-time sports position to ever decide to get out. The exceptions are very small in number, and uh, each one of them tells a lot about college sports as it now exists. Mm-hmm. And, and I was going to ask, too, going back to this point about uh, the aim of winning as opposed to budgetary considerations, did, did, you, did you come across an example where you have a team that, that is not successful on the field or the court, and uh, the leaders of the program, the leaders of the university say, well, we're, our teams aren't successful, let's scale back our spending, as opposed to our teams are not successful, let's increase our spending. <laughs> it, does, it, it hasn't happened very often. It probably, they're, they're, they're probably, um, well, let me give you this statistic, and, then, and I'll tell you, basically it almost never happens, but I'll give you one example in which it did. I said, well, let's, let's look at this thing. It seems like this is an activity that's been going along on a long time. I went back to 1920 and actually looked at 1919, 1920, 1921, and somebody has uh, fortunately gone through and, and ranked all the football teams, all the college football teams for each year based on their power ranking, who beat whom. And it turns out that of the top 100 football teams in, uh, in 1920, about 23 of them stopped being national universities like Oglethorpe uh, College. It just stopped being anything except a local college. And, and therefore, if it was going to play anything, it played it on a smaller level. So eliminate those. Of the remaining approximately 75 universities that were national universities over that whole period, seven of them decided to stop playing big-time football, and those were seven of the eight Ivy Leagues. And that only leaves two universities that said, just what you said, uh, we're not going to do this anymore. One of them was Washington University, and the other was the University of Chicago. Chicago is a good example. In fact, it's the exception that proves the rule. It was a powerhouse in the Midwest. It would normally... uh, typically beat uh, uh, lots of uh, big powerhouse teams, won a couple of championships, but they they came on hard times uh, about the same time that they had a new president named Robert Hutchins. Hutchins, right from the beginning, said, we should not be doing this. This is, no, this is nothing that universities should do. But even with Hutchins arguing against it, and year after year of losing games, the trustees held on to big-time football until 1939, when they had the most disastrous season one can imagine. Uh, I think they lost uh, to Michigan 85 to nothing. They lost to Virginia something like 60 to nothing. Um, and they just were getting pounded. That was what it took for, for uh, Chicago to get out. But if it took that much for one university and a president, you can just imagine how hard it is for a national university once it's in there to say to renounce it and it just hardly ever happens so use the term arms race 
to explain athletic spending in the pursuit of wins and in the pursuit of recruits. So, so could you explain that? Well, this is not original with me. The arms race idea is that I am, um, I need to get more missiles than you have, and then you're going to respond by getting more missiles than me. And of course, back in the 1920s, it was the size of your destroyers, and this uh, this sort of uh, thing has has been observed in a number of contexts. It's, I think, well summarized by the apocryphal story of the client asking his lawyer, uh, how much is this case going to cost me? And the lawyer says to him, how much do you have? And it's a question of, it's just, it pays to put every single dollar you can uh, in trying to defeat the other side. Well, economists have pointed out that from the standpoint of society, all this throwing money at the problem is wasteful from a social point of view, even though it makes sense for an individual university to do. So that's what's going on right now in the, uh, the college sports arena. And we see it probably best in two respects. One is the expenditures that have been made for facilities like practice facilities, like uh, centers for, for coaching and uh, tutoring uh, athletes. And apparently when re- recruits go from place to place, they want to see what kind of stadium they're going to be playing in. They, they want to see what kind of practice facility. They want to look at the, the locker room. So that's one. And the other one is that coaches' salaries are are going crazy. You know, I'll just give you this statistic that I think is one of the most uh, eye-opening of any statistic in the book. I was able to get information on compensation for three groups of university employees between 1986 and 2010. That's a 24-year period. I corrected for inflation. I corrected for differences in health and retirement benefits. So it's apples to apples comparison. Over this period, professors' compensation went up 32% after inflation, which is pretty darn good. You know, we're a third higher than we were in 1986. But over that same period, presidents' compensation went up 90%. And the compensation of football coaches went up seven and a half times, 650%. It's just uh, an order of magnitude more than anything else. Yeah, you presented that uh, that data in a, in a bar graph, and uh, you call it eye opening. I called it eye popping to look at that graph. And, <laughs> and in fact, I, I my son is 13 years old, and he's a huge sports fan. He's a huge football fan, and I showed him that graph, and his eyes popped. So even if, <laughs> even a 13 year old can look at that and see this is this is a big problem. <laughs> well, it's a problem that it. It certainly is frightening university presidents. There are several things about big-time sports that are matters of great concern to university presidents, but that might be the number one thing is how in the world are we going to sustain this thing? So does that figure in getting getting back into this question of, of athletic programs running deficits, uh, how much does that figure in in terms of the – uh, the increase in paying salaries for football coaches, basketball coaches, but then all of their staffs because their staffs have also multiplied, correct? Right. It's the size of the staff and the compensation for the staff. So the statistic I just gave you only had to do with head coaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, among those who know, 
the greatest escalation, I don't know if that's true or not, but the great escalation has been in the salaries for the assistant coaches and the position coordinators, all of these many uh, um, coaches that are attached to a football and increasingly into basketball teams as well. The number of coaches is just uh, pretty mind-boggling, and they are getting paid much, much more than the, the top professors at the universities. So I want to turn this to a, a very contemporary issue. So just a few days ago on May 30th, Jim Tressel, the football coach at Ohio State, resigned over problems related to athletes exchanging their complimentary tickets and memorabilia in exchange for goods ranging from tattoos to cars. And as I've been listening to and reading the coverage of Tressel's fall, this story and, and stories like it are typically told as moral dramas, as a failure of the coach or of the players to stand against the corruption in the sport. And based on your research, uh, can you give uh, something of an explanation for what what compels coaches and boosters of major sports programs to violate the rules? The economists can only talk about the incentives and uh, and, and then it's left to the philosopher and the moralist and, and, the, and the pastor to explain the moral failings. Anytime a rule is broken, there is some kind of moral failing. So let's just acknowledge that. But these, these things do have uh, degrees. What the economists can do in this situation is to say there, there, is, <laughs> there are so many reasons to try to go as close to the line as you can get and more, uh, that it, it's a powerful temptation. And a temptation arises uh, from a dual facts. Now, fact number one is, is to get top star players for your football or basketball team is extremely important. Uh, it's been estimated that the economic value to a university of having a football player who's good enough to get drafted by the NFL one day is about a half a million dollars per year. So you get a football player that that's good. That's going to be half a million dollars for four years. That's $2 million more million of revenue just because of that one player. In basketball, the number is over a million dollars. So, and the, and the reason uh, that this is, I guess, so tempting is because the universities, by the rules that have been set up by the NCAA, they don't have to pay them anything close to that. So there's all of this money coming into the university. If you just could get this person signed up with your university, therefore, there is all kind of incentive to do things like uh, have a, um, a nice new building for them to practice in. That's one. But you can understand why there's so much temptation to slip money under the table. If, if it weren't for this restriction on the payment of the players, the, the temptation would be much less because the players, you'd get a good player, but you'd have to pay for him too. And as it is, you don't have to do that. So the, the rules, and, and especially the rule that limits the compensation for players, is a culprit here. And of course, a lot of attention has been paid to the fact that the players are getting exploited, and there's kind of no way around it. They are. 
So I'll ask you, don't discuss that in the book, but uh, if if payer, players were paid, do you think it would uh, put an end to these, uh, these ethics problems? I think it would reduce them, uh, I mean, tremendously. You don't, you don't see uh, a lot of discussion of, of um, baseball um, teams getting punished for breaking a rule because they're, they're trying to get somebody to play for them, but they're going to pay them a lot of money too. So it's just not, it's a kind of a different situation. Uh, but having said that the players are, are being exploited, uh, and that, again, that's not, I can't use that uh, professionally because economists, you know, we don't use the word exploited, but uh, I think in everyday um, parlance, you'd understand what that is. Having said that, that doesn't say that um, the right thing to do is to is to pay them because I think once you started doing that, the whole nature of the mystique of the of college sports would be damaged in such a way that it's hard to predict what that would do for the demand for the sport. Now, you could imagine that um, a situation in which the players are paid. It's going to look a lot like minor league baseball. Uh, you'll you'll recognize that these are professionals, just like the NFL, but they're just not as good. Right now, there's a mystique that surrounds the whole thing, which I think creates a, a, an interest in watching players who objectively aren't as good as the pros, but still have very exciting games. I want to turn to teams and their fans, and, and I have an interest in the attachment of fans to their teams, uh, and I approach that issue from the perspective of cultural and social history, but you have, as an economist, a much different view on fans and their teams, and one that I found to, to be quite illuminating and helpful. And you talk about fan allegiance as a form of brand loyalty. Could you talk about that, please? Well, I, I'm not saying that the economic way of thinking about it is... Um, is better than any other way. In fact, I would be fascinated to talk with you about the cultural roots behind this kind of loyalty. One of the questions that got to me more and more as I went through this thing is, is what created the interest in some people's uh, loyalty? They, uh, there's a number of explanations and I try to reflect a little bit of that in the book, but at the end of the day, they are very deep and, and quite important. And I'll just give you one example. Uh, there is a chapter in which I talk about this, and it, it turns out that more than its share of, uh, of examples are for Alabama for some reason, because some people have just been articulate in talking about it. But my cousin, when she came up to uh, watch the Alabama-Duke football game last year, told me that in, uh, in her hometown newspaper, people would uh, write about the Crimson Tide in their obituaries or in the obituaries they're writing for somebody else. And so I went to the web and looked at the Birmingham News obituaries just for 2010 of that uh, of the, the months that had transpired since then. And it was uh, quite remarkable. A number of obituaries mentioned the Crimson Tide. You would see things like he loved his church, his family, his community, and the Alabama Crimson Tide. Well, you don't write things like that in an obituary as a joke. It, it only goes in there. Uh, it's written by somebody who cares about the departed person. And for things to be that important, to get mentioned in your obituary, 
mean that they really have significance in somebody's life. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's crazy. That's not very important. But it's one of those things that gives importance to people's lives. It's one of the things that, that um, brings uh, happiness to people cheering for a team that might win, they might lose. And at the end of the day, these kind of loyalties add up to a, a lot. And, and that's, I guess that was one of the surprises about the book is that the, these universities that you know uh, think of themselves as highly intellectual ivory towers looking for truth are also producing something that gives a lot of common people um, a reason to tune into a game on Saturday and, and a reason to josh their fellow churchgoers about a game that either was won or lost. So you present some telling research on, on the demographics of fans as well, and I want to ask you about that. In one, in one section of the book, in the early part of the book, you look at the social and political profiles of boosters, and then in a later section you look at the students who enroll at universities with big-time sports programs, and you look at their social backgrounds, their political views, and their activities on campus. So could you give something of a picture of, of uh, what you found in looking at boosters and at the students who go to these universities. All right, let me look at and tell you about the boosters first. I found this very interesting, but I'm not sure what I do with the, the findings. Inspired by some work that that one political science uh, writer wrote to really was making the argument that the that there is a booster coalition. So it's a little bit of a conspiracy theory that the boosters kind of take over the university and they run the athletic program and the president doesn't have anything to do with it. And one of the arguments was that these boosters are really different from everybody else. So I had a research assistant look at the political registration of boosters versus other uh, groups of um um, stakeholders in universities with and without big-time football. And it turned out that the big difference was that in universities with big-time football, boosters were, were more likely to be Republicans than they were in other uh, universities. There wasn't any difference statistically in the other groups I looked at. And now, what that means, I don't know. And then let me turn over to the students. I looked at a, a number of ways that you could think about big time sports as a as a commodity, as a business enterprise, as a way of attracting support for the university. But I also did it as in a, its educational form. And because universities sponsor a program, it implicitly says we approve of this. So I asked the question, what is the effect of having a big-time program on the students? Well, I can't answer that thing scientifically because the overriding fact is that the universities who are at universities, I'm sorry, the students that are, who are at universities with big-time sports, those are students that have chosen to be there. So they are different right from the box. But there hadn't been any research that I know of that compared those students with students that were at other universities, what I found is that they're more affluent and they are tend to be more conservative and they tend to work less uh, in terms of hours spent in homework and in um, um, 
on in class and, and homework. And finally, they're more likely to be uh, binge drinkers. Now, again, that may be completely what we call a selection effect, but there is a systematic difference between the students who are at universities with big-time sports. And maybe, Bruce, could I mention also the really the one, I guess, causal effect that a social scientist would sit up and take notice. There has been a lot of talk about the fact that the NCAA basketball tournament creates the opportunity for a lot of people in the week that they're filling out their brackets that, that, that wastes a lot of time. And so people have estimated the number of lost hours and all that kind of thing. Well, I wanted to say, I wanted to actually measure what the effect of the tournament was on work. I looked around, thought about it, and I came up with a measure uh, that I think is a pretty good measure of work that's never been used in this kind of context. And I, I looked at the number of articles that were viewed in a digital repository called JSTOR. Social scientists and other academics use JSTOR as a way of finding journal articles. They don't go to the library anymore. And, and students, too, I'll throw that in. And, 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 and students are probably dominating because in terms numerically, they're probably dominating. And what I then did, I, had, I, I got permission from 78 different research libraries. I got permission from the company and I have the number of articles viewed every day in February, March, and April in three successive years. And then I put those alongside what was happening in the NCAA tournament. And it turns out that the, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday following Selection Sunday, that's when everybody's filling out their brackets, <laughs> there is a, a noticeable drop every year in the amount of work that's done. And then... Furthermore, if a university has a team in the tournament, there's a drop. And if the team unexpectedly wins a game, there's a tremendous drop for a day when either people are celebrating or they're doing something else. And so nobody that I've ever seen have been able to relate what's going on in this, what you'd call a media extravaganza, to what goes on in universities. But there wasn't a corresponding drop when teams would lose unexpectedly. Is that right? Right, and I, I didn't, you know, I didn't expect. I thought it would be symmetrical, but yeah. it wasn't. So, it, and I didn't, I didn't relate this to actually winning a game because if you have a good team, you expect to win. So, <laughs> you you would not expect to uh, have your your routine interrupted. But if you win unexpectedly, so it's a close game or it's an upset. That's where the big effects were. So the students at Duke, they just go back, right back to work on Monday after after the tournament, whereas the students at, uh, uh, trying to think of, of a team, VCU probably would be an example. That's right. Yeah. So Virginia Commonwealth uh, kept winning games unexpectedly, and so probably it was not a good semester <laughs> for uh, the professors. <laughs> All right, I want to I stick with asking about students and uh, – uh, one of the one of the questions you ask throughout the book is is this big question: Why do universities commit themselves to these costly sports programs? And one answer that's given, or one justification that's given, is that successful sports programs bring in students. And you and you mentioned this earlier in the case of Butler. So, so could you talk about your findings on this? Is this true, in fact? Well, on, on this particular point, uh, it's sometimes called the Flutie effect after a guy named Doug Flutie, uh, that the, the idea uh, is that 
uh, a winning season will bring in more applicants. That's been much debated. Uh, but the best economic study, it was not done by me, but done by a couple of economists who happened to be brothers, uh, did a very careful study and found that, yes, indeed, a successful basketball and football programs does bring more applicants. And in fact, some of these applicants are high-achieving applicants. So there is a real effect. But at the end of the day, I don't think this and, and the other sort of instrumental benefits are enough to explain why they really do it. And so that's that comes back to my explanation that the it's got to be the trustees who really want to do it for its own sake. But that's only that's only my explanation. Uh, there's no uh, scientific um, test of that hypothesis. And another justification then is that the major revenue generating sports then pay for student participation in non-revenue sports such as tennis and volleyball and gymnastics. And you looked into that justification as well. And what did you find on that? Um, not much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one, you know, one does uh, one argument, one justification for having all this money is that we, you know, here these two sports have to carry all the rest of them. So I just did a, a little. Uh, it's really a scatter plot. I just. Uh, plotted each university and on on a graph, and asked the question: If the university gets a lot more revenue from their program, do they fund a lot more people playing these non-revenue sports? And the answer is no. It's, it's almost no relation at all. Some universities think it's important for for their students to play on teams, and some don't. Uh, but it really has nothing to do with whether you have the big time sports. And then one other uh, argument for these programs or, or uh, explanation for their benefit for the universities is that uh, there's a connection between sports and successful sports and fundraising and also um, the, uh, the generating of, of influence for the university uh, with legislators or with the public. And this is something that you looked at. And, and before I ask you about your findings on this, I want to ask you about the research you undertook because this was, this was fascinating to me. Uh, so you asked for, you asked different universities for their uh, VIP lists for people who had been invited to sit in the president's suite at, at the football stadium. And uh, the response you get was, was quite troubling, I would say. Could you talk about that first? <laughs> Well, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a professor, and I don't, I'm not a, a reporter, so I'm not in the business of doing these uh, freedom of information requests. That's what reporters do. So I was talking to a reporter who had done a very interesting study um, and, and asked her if, if she could share some of the findings. She said, I'd be happy to, but it's really not very – it's probably not going to be very helpful. Why don't you do your own? And I said, oh, I can't do that. It turns out there's, there's a website you can – uh, put your request in, and it it cites all the, the appropriate state law because these are state laws, not the federal. It's not a federal uh, law. So then you write this letter. It asks for this information. It cites law. It's, it's it offers to pay uh, reasonable expenses, and it gives a deadline. And more than half of the universities complied. They have a compliance officer that you know they don't. That this is a part of being a public university, they're, they're going to respond to mainly um, reporters. But a few universities really did stonewall me. And I, I was 
you know, curious about what in the heck are you trying to hide? Um, and, and I guess I didn't know what I was going to find, but I suspected that it was going to be state legislators who are going to loom very large in these VIP boxes. Well, they were there, but they weren't there in, in tremendous numbers the way I thought they would be. What you mainly saw was potential donors. And there was really nothing. If, if you were a development officer, you wouldn't find any of it surprising. And in fact, it looked very similar across the about eight universities that I eventually got the data and, and um, analyzed. Because what we had to do is we got these lists and then I had students just go to the web and find out who the heck these people are. And then I, I classified them. And there were just very, you know, there weren't any smoking guns for crying out loud. So I don't understand why the universities that gave me such a hard time were doing it, except they just probably got annoyed that a professor was asking for this information. But it is, it was striking. It, one university in particular, and to send you, how many, how many names did they redact oh, with black marker this is michigan state so michigan state um number one gave me a bill for uh their time which was it's reasonable for them to give me a bill but this it seemed like a lot of money and i've forgotten how much it was but after i dutifully paid that they they sent me about eight pages of names but most of the names were uh had been redacted so it was mostly a lot of black uh, marks. And so Michigan State evidently felt that there was an uh, interest in keeping a lot of these names uh, private. Yeah. And, and so all I could do is, is to put it in a footnote that these universities uh, reacted in the following way. And, and to some extent, that might have been the most interesting part of the whole reaction is that, is that some universities really did everything they could do, um, in, including speaking with a forked tongue. Uh, to avoid giving me this, yeah, and 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 in reading that, I was I was thinking, a governor's office in these states couldn't away couldn't get away with doing what what the <laughs> athletics programs did. That's right. So you know, it's it's one of these casing cases of methinks she doth protest too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so, as an economist, you do conclude your research with with an analysis of costs and benefits. And, and what did you find in that analysis? Well, there's, I guess, two ways to look at it. From the university standpoint, it's almost a truism. You keep doing the same thing. You're a smart institution. The benefits must be greater than the cost. So that's almost the the extent of the economic logic on the thing. And and these are smart institutions. Make no mistake about it. These these are univer- these universities are full of smart people. They use committees to decide things. They are in the best of them. There is a very deliberative open discussion of these things and and decisions are not made lightly. Now, you have a big operation that's very very public. And you do it year after year after year after year. Well, it's got to be the case that you've decided this is a pretty important part of your operation. I'd say it's so important that you, by golly, ought to put it in your mission statement. So that's kind of the point of view from the individual institution's point of view. But then then you ask, well, how is it good from society's point of view? 
And there, the decision, uh, the outcome might be a little bit uh, more controversial. That it, it might not be so obvious. For for example, the arms race uh, situation, as analyzed by economists, these this this comes into the category of uh, something called the prisoner's dilemma, and that the the optimal thing for society in a prisoner's dilemma situation is for there to be some collective um, arms control. And then everybody is just as secure as they were before, but they're not spending as much money. And so that's one of the things I think that the university presidents right now are trying to figure out is, is there a way to um, slow the spending down uh, and we'll all be in the same position. The, the, the problem is all the solutions that people talk about are are, gonna, are some kind of violation of antitrust uh, laws. So you briefly mentioned in there, universities are, are full of smart people. Uh, they sit on committees, they study these issues, and yet you had several anecdotes in your book where uh, a committee would recommend something and typically the university president would step in and, and do something completely different and, and most often uh, to expand the athletics program or to increase funding for the athletics program. Well, the best example of this uh, is the University of California at Berkeley, which is you know one of our most famous universities and certainly a university that's well known in the professorate for having an active faculty. Their faculty senate uh, found out that not only did their athletic program lose money, but that a few years previous, the chancellor had forgiven uh, an accumulated debt. And this was all happening in an atmosphere in which there were draconian cuts in the budget, including furloughing a lot of faculty. So this last few years in which the the recession has hit universities, especially public universities, in such a way. It has made the faculty pretty grumpy about the big salaries uh, and the expanded programs of the athletic programs at the same time that they're seeing cuts all around them. So that's really the context that uh, that has made push come to shove. And then, but it's it's become increasingly clear that the faculty really don't have much say in this. And in a sense, the president doesn't have all that much say. It's got to go to the trustees. Um, and this, I mean, this reminds me of this, this question about reform. The Knight Commission, which has been a, a great institution in uh, looking at uh, a, a great body over, over the last 20 years or so in, in looking at the, the need to reform college sports, occasionally will call on presidents to have some backbone or faculty to have some backbone and stand up to the athletic, these, these forces of commercialism. But to me, I think this is a misguided uh, appeal because the reason why these universities are in it is not because of some outside influence. It's uh, like the old Pogo cartoon, uh, we have met the enemy and he is us. Mm-hmm. And I was going to ask, your final chapter, you do discuss possible reforms, and, and you, you indicate three channels of reform. Uh, what, what do you propose for, or what do you suggest, I should say, uh, as far as reforming this system? I don't think there's 
much that can be done, actually. So I, I start with the proposition that these problems, the problems that people decry today are the very same problems that were discussed with great intensity in the 1920s. Nothing has changed except the size of the problem because television and greater affluence make the dollars just, uh, they'll make your eyes water. But in terms of the the structure of the problem, it's the same. And I conclude from this is that the prospect of reform from within higher education is very, very limited. That the only thing that is really promising to, to, to change things which is probably going to be either an act of Congress and the Congress is really not disposed to do anything uh, because of the popularity of college sports. So you can almost rule that out. And, and the other thing is some um, set of judges, federal judges might do something and they don't have to worry about voters. So it's possible you might get um, a ruling from a court that might throw things into uh, a tizzy. Right now, there's an ongoing uh, suit about uh, this O'Bannon compensation. This is the idea that after students have finished being students, they still can't get any kind of return from the NCAA and their universities using their likenesses, which seems kind of crazy. So uh, that's that's the only kind of uh, area I, I guess I do mention that uh, the tax authorities could take another look at the contributions, and and that would have an effect. And you do talk about that universities should be should be honest that that they're really in the entertainment business, right? Well, I, I think right. If there's if the the book has any appeal for reform, it is to my brothers and sisters in universities, and and it basically says to all of us. We're in institutions where we place a great value on truth. Why don't we start by being truthful about the extent and the nature of our involvement with commercial sports? And once we do that, we can have a better, more productive conversation about whether these compromises that vary are, are, are very real, whether we can, whether these kind of compromises are worth the candle. And I would say there's some easy things that universities might look at themselves and say, do we really want to be doing this? For example, universities are standing behind beer advertising on television, and these are programs that are watched by underage people, and these underage young people are drinking more because of the ads. We universities are doing that. Do we want to be in that position? Mm-hmm. So we're almost out of time, Charlie, and I have, I have one last question on the book. Uh, so this, as a scholarly work, this is a book, it's, it's carefully researched, it's dispassionate and analytical in its writing, but I was wondering as I was reading it, were there any points in the research or the writing where you, as a professor and a sports fan, where you were just outraged? Oh. You know, I guess I'm beyond outrage. It's sometimes it's it's like, oh, give me a break. You know, and it's it just it just makes it so petty, and um, 
And I guess when SMU, Southern Methodist, when they were paying their players, in a way you sort of had to give them credit for being <laughs> completely, you know, straightforward. Here's your here's your monthly payment, and and then once you start it, it's very hard to stop. And I guess the outrageous part of that is that the board of trustees chair had been governor of Texas and would again be governor, and he approved it. So that was pretty outrageous. Well, I would say there were there were several places in the book where I was outraged or, or simply stunned by the by the evidence you presented, and and I'll say that this book I I really think this book belongs in the category of must read for people with a serious interest and a serious concern in in college athletics, and and I'll ask you in in conclusion, uh, what are you working on now? Are you sticking with this issue or or what type of research are you doing? It's uh, um, education, most of it. Um though I'm, I'm continuing to stay um, uh, aware of what's going on in uh, college sports, but I'm working on uh, with colleagues at Duke on questions of what uh, are universities doing, uh, uh, which, why are some universities and two-year institutions, why are some apparently better than others, and we're looking also at, at K-12 education. Okay. Well, thank you, Charlie, for being on the program. And once again, I found this book for for a scholarly book in economics. I found this to be a gripping read, and even the end notes were, were gripping, I found. So I really enjoyed this, and, <laughs> and uh, I appreciate you coming on the program. been my pleasure, Bruce. You have been listening to an interview with Charles Klotfilter about his book, Big Time Sports in American Universities, published in 2011 by Cambridge University Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from popular culture to military history. If you like what you heard, please visit the Facebook page for New Books and Sports, where you can give us your feedback, get announcements of new interviews, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.